This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is For I Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe. We are currently witnessing in Western Europe a populist moment that signals the crisis of neoliberal hegemony. The central axis of the political conflict will be between right and left-wing populism. By establishing a frontier between the people and the oligarchy, a left populist strategy could bring together the manifold struggles against subordination, oppression, and discrimination. This strategy acknowledges that democratic discourse plays a crucial role in the political imaginary of our societies. And through the construction of a collective will, mobilizing common affects in defense of equality and social justice, it will be possible to combat the xenophobic policies promoted by right-wing populism. In redrawing political frontiers, this populist moment points to a return of the political after years of post-politics. This return may open the way for authoritarian solutions through regimes that weaken liberal democratic institutions, but it could also lead to a reaffirmation and extension of democratic values. For a Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. My guest today is Nikhil Paul Singh, a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and the faculty director of the NYU Prison Education Program. We're going to be talking about an unfortunate obsession shared by certain pundits, journalists, and social scientists definitively proving that Trump won because of racism and racism alone. What drives so many people to dedicate so much time to arguing that either class or race or gender or whatever matters the most, or worse yet, matters exclusively? And what does matter more even mean? I suspect that many who propose a solution to the race versus class question don't have an answer as to why this question is even asked in the first place. On the one hand, liberal identitarians, still all too familiar from the 2016 primary, purportedly believe that it's all important. Class, race, gender, everything. But they refuse to conceptualize race, class, and gender as important in any sort of systematic way. Instead of a materially rooted analysis, liberal identitarians elaborate a laundry list of identities as the reference point for a politics of recognition, whereby class and other things are reduced to mere identities to be affirmed by the political economic system as it exists, rather than as the products of power relations and the sites of conflict. The liberal identitarian framework, then, obscures both class and race's roots within complex material relations of production, segregated built environments, geopolitical orders and empire, and a political terrain that cannot be simplistically reduced to any of those things. Limited to this surface-level approach, liberals neutralize the struggle against racism and replace it with a demand for representation and recognition that's abstracted from the tangled economic and political realities 
of housing and school segregation, of labor market segmentation and discrimination, and of police violence and mass incarceration. The problem, then, isn't that liberals excessively emphasize race and racism, as some on the left seem to believe. Rather, the problem is that liberals remove racism from its place within capitalism, reducing it to a matter of certain people carrying around retrograde discriminatory ideas in their heads. In reality, race is the product of a racism that functions in particular ways under capitalism at particular moments, though not, I want to emphasize, in a purely functional manner. Racism certainly serves capitalism, but racism also always, like any ideology, also takes on a life of its own. Even, thanks to a bevy of inevitable contradictions, functioning at cross-purposes to capitalism. Just look at the Trump administration, which mobilizes racism in the service of building a popular base for a corporate agenda, but simultaneously narrows that base to an ever-smaller portion of the American people, thus endangering that agenda's long-term survival. This is where the problems on the socialist left come in, exemplified by Melissa Naschek's review in Jacobin of Assad Hader's book, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. There's a lot wrong with that review, including that much of it didn't seem to actually be about Hader's book. But as Hader explains in his smart response posted on Verso's blog, the review's biggest problem is its blithe acceptance that we have a choice to make between, quote, identity-based particularism, and class-based universalism. As Hayter put it in his response, all struggles emerge from specific sites and have specific demands, but they generate universal principles that nobody should be a slave, that nobody should be exploited, that nobody should be subjected to state violence. What these principles allude to is a collectivity of people who aim to govern their own lives. I think that's well put. Because as socialists, we should not impose dogmatic schema on reality. Instead, we must carefully analyze the present moment and the historically specific ways that capitalist exploitation of workers relates to imperial warfare, the exploitation of natural resources, patriarchy and state repression, and more. And that's what I'll be discussing today with Nikhil Paul Singh with a specific focus on the social science punditocracy nexus that insists on persistently offering a very confused analysis of the 2016 election. Next week, I'll be talking about similar issues with Nancy Fraser. Before we get rolling, that was a long opening monologue, so I'll keep this very short and sweet. Please support this podcast at patreon.com slash the dig. Seriously. If you listen to this podcast regularly and can afford to do so, please contribute at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. That's how this whole thing works and will survive over the long haul. Okay, here's Nikhil Paul Singh, the author of Race in America's Long War and Black is a Country, Race in the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy. Paul Singh, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Dan, so, so much for having me. So my idea was that the show would be a sort of quixotic effort to finally end the mind-numbing 
class versus race? Did Trump win because of the economy or racism debate? Are you game? <laughs> I'm I'm game. <laughs> it's a tall order, but I'm game. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to go through some of these studies that purport to prove the one and only reason that people voted for Trump and thus, at least implicitly, why Trump won, and then also some of the media reception of these studies. But first, I wanted to step back and ask you about the big picture of what is wrong with with all of these studies, including the very premises of the questions that they're asking. You recently tweeted, I'll just say that pseudoscientific survey data that purports to reveal the status anxiety of Trump voters does not and never will provide an answer to the question of why did Trump win? U.S. popular politics is an occult, mediated, manipulated, racialized, economically ravaged realm, constrained by ancient design. The answer to the question, why did Trump win, is, in short, overdetermined. The poverty of our politics continues to find its match in the poverty of the theory that purports to explain it to us. I really loved that. And my my question is, can you explain a bit in what ways the bankrupt punditry and scholarship that pervade our discourse match the depravity of the politics that they claim to so perfectly interpret? First, I would say we have a very historically shallow account of our political life. It should surprise no one in the United States that racist, white supremacist, anti-immigrant, xenophobic appeals have political traction in this country. This is not news. Um, it is it is something that has coursed through our politics from its origins. Um, and we could track some of the currents that Trump picked up on, but there was nothing novel about them. So the idea that we're suddenly discovering uh, racist proclivities in the electorate is itself on, on its face ludicrous. Um, point number two, um, we've lived through um, uh, an economically cataclysmic time for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in this country. Um, going back to the financial crisis, of course, of 2007, 2008, but going back much further um, into the, the long era that Larry Summers has now described as, you know, the era of secular stagnation. Wage growth, the, jo- the job losses uh, in the, the arenas of manufacturing, uh, wage growth that stagnated, job losses, um, income stagnation for people in the middle and bottom um, part of the economic order. Uh, these are also well-known um, contextual features of our economy. We have also been in a country, um, at least since the election of 2000, that has been very evenly poised between the two parties. Um, so the idea that we wouldn't have close presidential elections um, is is also um, you know a kind of a kind of a strange uh, amnesia. So on so many accounts, I feel that um, we don't get a kind of deep historical um, analysis of how of what the tendencies are in our politics. 
Um, and there is the belief somewhere in some quarter of academia and some quarter of punditry and some quarter of sort of political campaigning that politics is somehow a science that can be sort of determined through these sort of mechanisms of, 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 of polling and prediction and statistical analysis. And I mean, if anything, Trump taught us is, is that a lot of that is bunk because most people got it completely wrong. And now people are scrambling around to try to figure out what is the what is the single cause, you know? Um, and uh, there isn't a single cause. Uh, it's 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 like any complicated social phenomenon. It, it's got many different causes, and anything that we do to assess this is going to involve an interpretation on our part, and that interpretation needs to be informed by a lot of different kinds of evidence. Um, including some of the things I've been saying about the sort of wider historical context and an understanding of American political culture over a longer period of time. What corner of this massive political iceberg, most of which is submerged to beat that metaphor to, to death, are, are so many pundits and scholars looking at? Like, wh- what is it to them in their blind commitment to vulgar empiricism that they're looking at and don't realize how little that they're looking at? I think, you know, in some ways, most of all, there's a uh, there's a failure. Well, I mean, you're asking me what they are looking at. I think what they are looking at is they're looking at voters um, and they're trying to assess the preferences of voters and to isolate the variable that determines why people vote the way that they do. Um, And I think that 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 effort to isolate the variable leads them to produce categories like economic anxiety or status anxiety, as if those categories are even self-evident, and then to believe they have produced questions um, that allow them to discern um, the, the, uh, the, the sort of validation of one of those categories. Most people do not live out their lives thinking about, I'm feeling economic anxiety right now, right? <laughs> they don't, they certainly don't live out their lives thinking, I am feeling status anxiety. And they don't live out their lives thinking. I'm feeling um, so much that I would uh, even call it an eight on a scale of one to 10. <laughs> of one to 10, right. Or, or I am, a, or I am, I am, I am interested in preserving my membership in a group that dominates the country. You know, people are in, in incredibly varied circumstances under incredible pressure. Uh, they have they have multiple identities. Their 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 job. They, they have different jobs. They live in different neighborhoods. They have different kinds of social relationships. Um, I would be the last person, as I've already said, to uh, disavow. The, the the fact of racial animus and racial segregation in the United States in terms of how it determines or shapes people's perceptions, but but just as much I would be loath to say in a country like the United States where people are underinsured, where they live from paycheck to paycheck, um, where they don't have any retirement savings, where most people die in debt, where most people are one paycheck away from uh, economic catastrophe or health disaster away from economic catastrophe, that people aren't feeling economic stress and worry. I mean, it just it just seems to me that in the effort to try to isolate the variable through survey data, um, we're doing a huge disservice to our understanding of the country, of, of, of the, kind of, the kind of peril we are actually in, and of which I think Trump is a symptom. 
uh, any country that could elect Donald Trump president is in serious trouble serious trouble because not even just at the level of his of his stated politics and his policies but his his profound incompetence his profound disregard for uh for the well-being of anyone else besides himself um, or his family interests his profound corruption his 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 mendacity i mean these are all things that are very obvious i think to most of us um, but 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 he was elected president. So how that happened is is a real question, and I understand why people are 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 racking their brains to try to figure it out. Um, but I, I think a lot of times they're asking the wrong questions and they're going about uh, the investigation the wrong way. Moving on to the first, the most recent study of this sort that I'm aware of, it was uh, emblazoned like so in a New York Times headline. Trump voters driven by fear of losing status, not economic anxiety, study finds. Uh, This study was authored by political scientist uh, Diana Mutz, and it's called Status Threat, Not Economic Hardship, explains the 2016 presidential vote. Um, Mm -hmm. So before we get into any particulars, I'd like to address the very impossibility of this study's purported findings. In other words, just what sort of status might the median Trump voter be afraid of losing that didn't involve this inextricable web of not only race and class issues, but also ones related to the crisis of American imperialism and the securitization of everyday American life. Can you say a little bit about what she claims she's looking for? (laughs) You know, I think um, my understanding, and it may not be this specific study, but the argument is that employment and income is not related to Trump voters' um, preferences. So um, we can't find um, evidence of economic distress, um, job-related precarity, um, or any of those kinds of variables um, in the in the present experience of Trump voters to indicate that that is a significant cause for why they would choose to vote for him. Um, so, um, so then the question becomes: Well, they're they're they understand something like their vulnerability or their anxiety through exclusively through a racial lens. Um, through the threat, through threats that are understood to be somehow um, um, about various kinds of demonized others um, that, again, then have nothing to do with their perception of their material circumstances. I mean, I just find that whole way of framing things to be so absurd on its face. I mean, yeah. So, so like, what what does it mean if yeah. something's purely racism? What does a race? A lot of people are committed to making this argument that. It's it's just mm-hmm. racism and that any attempt to relate American racism to political economy is downplaying racism, but what which is absurd, right. obviously. But so what is this? Where do they locate racism? I think they locate racism in in a kind of very in a very narrow psychologistic understanding of personal prejudice and bigotry um, towards an out group that is. That is that. That's all racism is. That it has no other 
predicates, that it, it, that it is not related to any other ways of thinking about the world. It's, 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 it's ironic that so many of the people who want to talk about racism as a cause have the shallowest, most ahistorical understanding of what racism actually is and how it has been shaped in American life. This is the thing that probably drives me the most crazy yes. because in a certain kind of way, as a scholar of, 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 of race and racism myself, I feel like those who are arguing that racial animus is the is the sort of is a sort of central is central to understanding Trump's victory actually do us no favors because they don't actually help us to understand what the dimensions of racial animus actually are. Of course, racial animus was central to Trump's victory. I mean, Shock, I, shocking. I That's a it, shocking finding. <laughs> it, it, it's not a shocking finding, right? Of course, it was across the spectrum. Right. And we know that the vast majority of Trump voters are the people who vote for the GOP in every election. Uh, and they're 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 mostly they're mostly upper income. They're mostly affluent. Um, tr Trump certainly did um, did do well or do better among what becomes an index for uh, working class uh, voters, those without a high school education. But even there, in a country that has 135 million white Americans without a college degrees, only 20% voted for Trump. That's hardly a ringing endorsement of Trump's white working class support. So let's just like put that to rest for a minute, that idea that somehow the white working class was something that came out and voted for Trump because they were economically anxious. I don't believe that that is any more true um, than to say that there is some narrow kind of racial status anxiety that explains Trump's victory. Neither of those frames are actually frames that explain uh, anything really about about what has happened here. So, um, so, so to go back a, a couple of a couple of beats in this conversation to where where we started with this study or where you started with with the study, um, you know, I think to say that you could talk about racial animus or racial anxiety apart from a, a kind of wider worldview about where you sit in the world, about your future possibilities, about um, your kin networks or your social networks, um, about your place in the world more broadly, seems to me to be absolute nonsense. I mean, Trump himself shaped a lot of his appeal around a kind of racial nationalist politics of trade, which we now see playing out very directly. Right, which is the idea of, of, of America first. I'm going to protect our interests against all these countries that have been preying on us, above all China, right? And, and that's, that certainly was a big part of the, of the campaign. It's, it's maybe receded a little bit. So how is that either a purely economic narrative or a purely racial narrative? It's just not. It's neither of those things. Right. So it's it's both. Right. It's both. And it's um, and, and, and an economic claim about not just about the present and the past, but also about the future and about what endangers us. Is attached directly to a claim about status. Right. And about security. 
so so I think that we have to just get smarter in understanding how these arguments get assembled, because these arguments get assembled in a way that makes a certain kind of racialized common sense about the world, that we're threatened by these various kinds of enemies, right? Make sense to Americans where they live, because some of their basic conditions of livability are also not being addressed. So people are, of course, insecure, right? And that's the thing that I think is just is just uh, mind-numbing about this kind of conversation, because uh, because it seems to me that the desire to prove somehow a very narrow racial animus, it, the, 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 some, some of the wish behind that argument is, is that if we could just get rid of this, you know, this, this sort of delusion, you know, we could kind of go back to just being this, this kind of, um, this, this great country that we've always been, as if that were, you know, even remotely true. Yeah, Mutz, I think, near the, the end of her study, if I have this right, does actually state where where racism exists. And it's just like you said, it's it's in people's lizard brains. She writes, the 2016 election was a result of anxiety about dominant groups' future status rather than a result of being overlooked in the past. In many ways, a sense of group threat is a much tougher opponent than an economic downturn because it is a psychological mindset rather than an actual event or misfortune. It's clear that materialism had its mi- <laughs> hasn't made its way into her corner of the academy. It's this idea that racism is, is, is this free-floating, almost biological thing, and this has come up repeatedly on my show, it's, it's sort of unacknowledged corollary is biological racism. Yeah, it's an interesting point, I think. You know, I do I do think there's an element in the way in which people now talk about racists, right? As if they're somehow congenitally um made that way, right? As as opposed to and that it's somehow like it's, it's a genetic rooted, feature of whiteness almost. It's somehow rooted in their yeah, it's rooted in their sort of psychological DNA and people will use metaphors like that. It's to kind of it's it's again to kind of um, militate against the idea that we're dealing with something plastic, you know, something that is malleable, something that gets reshaped and and um, and remolded, uh, as opposed to something that's just kind of static and continuous. And you know, I mean, I do think there is something to the the way in which whiteness works um, in as a placeholder for um, kind of kind of. A, a racial animus that is always potentially activatable. You know, there's a yeah. famous line from the from from James Baldwin where he says, you know, in in one of his most despairing moments, the the black um, novelist and and critic James Baldwin, where he says, if you if you think that you, that you're white, there's no hope for you. You know, and I think what Baldwin is saying there is is really interesting because when he says, if you think you're white, he's actually holding out the possibility that you as a so-called white person do not have to identify and invest in your whiteness as the primary thing mm-hmm. that uh, that defines you in the world. And there are many, many people who are by outward definition white who do not invest in their whiteness and use it as a cudgel, right? Um, 
I do not actually think that we are in a country that is in the grip of a kind of a kind of monolithic um, and majoritarian racial animus. I think we're in a country in which racial animus and an identification and investment in whiteness as a kind of status can constantly be reactivated as an element in our politics. And that is the road that Trump traveled. And to some extent, he was successful in traveling that road. Um, but it is also a road that past GOP candidates going all the way back, really, um, to Nixon and Reagan and others have also traveled. And so did Bill Clinton. Yes, I was just and about so to mention did, <laughs> And so did Hillary Clinton when she ran against Barack Obama and start, when she started to lose, talked about how she would be the better candidate of hardworking white Americans. I think it was the hardworking to- Americans, comma, white Americans. <laughs> right, right. Something like that. The effort to activate a self-interest in whiteness is part of our politics and it's part of the politics that we have to we have to absolutely eradicate we have to we have to root it out we have to reject it consciously and we have to try to find a way to to retrain ourselves to see our commonalities and our interests as part of the demos you know against the forces in our society that make life so unlivable for so many people and there's also a implicit class project at work to the extent that these are often affluent white liberal people patting themselves on the back for their wokeness while locating racism in the the hick the redneck the the backward white person who is being actually like racialized as like a bad white as white trash and that's an old story right i mean the the racialization of poor whites and the idea that poor whites are the engine of racial animus because of, as you say, you know, their lizard brains, their kind of, their kind of backwardness, their primitiveness, um, their, their uneducatedness, their ignorance, all of these kinds of associations. I mean, it is a, it is a racialized stereotype. Absolutely. There's no question about that, you know? And I mean, given the fact that it's actually crackpot white billionaires that have driven this, you know, from the Mercers to those those Uline people. To, yeah, I just read about Trump the Ulines. They're really something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, these people are these people are 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 far right. They're highly educated. They're extremely wealthy. Um, they're invested in often the most regressive and highly intellectualized forms of racial thinking, uh, base, basically eugenics. Um, they have as much disgust for poor whites um, as they do for poor people of color, um, but they understand the politics of racial demagoguery. Which is overlooked in Charles Murray's work, that he is— Absolutely. Yeah, um, people focus on the fact that he's a racist, but he, he really doesn't think highly of poor white people at all. Absolutely. I mean, racism and classism of this kind are actually very closely related. You know, and Adolf Reed has made this point about the, the kind of myth of the black underclass. I mean, the invention of this notion of a kind of under, a kind of a pathological underclass, it's, 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 that was very central to the politics, the kind of harsh politics of, of, of welfare rollback and, and the punitive turn in um, the, the kind of um, criminal punishment uh, over the last 25, 30 years. Uh, 
you know, much of that road on the idea of this kind of um, this kind of pathology that's sort of rooted in people's neighborhoods and where they live and how they act and how they um, how they raise their children and their personal habits and and those descriptions of 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 poor black people, which were very central to stoking the kind of anti-welfare discourse, are now almost almost repeated, you know, verbatim when people talk about poor whites. Um, ostensibly now under the banner of being, you know, anti-racist, but but in fact, as you point out, it's 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 become very much a class a class project and um, and a racist one because it's, it's like the the real whites, i.e., non-white trash, have have these woke ideas, or it's these it's these bad whites who are not really white who tarnish whiteness because they're white trash. It's like yeah um, yeah 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 yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I want to talk about how this debate is framed a little bit. This New York Times story about the Mutt study begins like so. Ever since Donald J. Trump began his improbable political rise, many pundits have credited his appeal among white Christian male voters to economic anxiety. Hobbled by unemployment and locked out of the recovery, those voters turned out in force to send Mr. Trump and a message to Washington, or so that narrative goes. And, and this is a really representative lead in this story because so many of these stories and studies position themselves as bravely knocking down this conventional wisdom that it was all the economy. But as far as I can tell, the notion that it was either exclusively race or exclusively class, class is the conventional wisdom. Yes, I agree. I agree. I, I it, when you read that to me, I, I find it so strange because I can't think of a single study I've I've read where that makes the argument that Trump was elected because of economic anxiety. Am I am I missing something? No, I think for me I mean, for me that it's just class story. If anything, is a slice of popular narrative, maybe. Yeah, and maybe yeah. some journal like feature journalism, while that it was just racism, exclusively racism seems to be utterly hegemonic across a broad swath of lib- the liberal punditocracy and political science. As that's- yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think it's a real hangover from the Hillary-Bernie, you know, kind of conflict because because I think that some of this got formulated then in their argument, you know, that 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 Bernie was, you know, making an argument about economic inequality and was tone deaf on race, but she was sort of tapped in and tuned in and woke and everything and able to kind of kind of make an argument about social justice and in fact explicitly weaponized social justice politics against the kind of the kind of economic economic equality arguments that someone like Bernie was making. I, I mean, my recollection of it is something to the effect of, you know, um, you know, bringing the banks to account will not end racism or something like that. Right. Um, I think Hillary, Hillary made an argument. At this Nevada rally, I think she's like, if right. we break up the big banks tomorrow, and I will if we need to, um, would that end yeah. racism? No. Would that end sexism? Right. No. Would that end homophobia? Right. <laughs> right. So why why you would the only reason you would make an argument like that is if you were trying to triangulate, which is exactly what the Clintons do, which is to basically, you know, to basically pit one one group against another, thinking that they will come out come out on top. So I think this argument of it's the economy, you know, stupid, which was actually Bill Clinton. Line, but now it's no longer. 
it's the economy or you know it's um, it's 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 racism, sexism, ableism, xenophobia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know are actually proxies for an argument that is going on within the Democratic Party about about what happened, about what went wrong, about the future, about strategy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and you know you can kind of understand how these things become proxies for for different different positions, especially since the political class is is so small and so insular and so so in, so so wedded to these kinds of fights for influence that are about their own careers. Um, but it does a disservice to all of us, right, to to imagine that that is a meaningful or useful way of framing the the struggle that's ahead of us. I mean, the Democratic Party will never expand the electorate in the ways it needs to win decisively against the GOP with a narrow anti-racist platform, nor will it expand the electorate. And not just because it won't appeal to this prototypical, you know, mythic, like, you know, laid off white industrial worker. That message did not turn out black voters. Well, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Nor, nor will it nor will it expand the electorate in the ways it needs to, you know, if it if it pursues an agenda that's exclusively about an economic argument divorced from you know the kind of kinds of questions of injustice that many people experience in their everyday life right it's like black voters did not turn out for hillary clinton in wisconsin and the numbers that they had turned out for obama you know but but that's almost never the story you know that's almost never never part of the analysis uh, the fact that there are 4 million you know or something i think one study recent study that you were you you had you had um, referred me to at one point 4 million Million black voters missing due to mass incarceration and premature death by by some count, you know, is a is a huge number, right? A decisive uh, a decisive we, number in absolutely. in terms of national politics, potentially. So, I mean, and the idea that black voters can be turned out purely on the basis of an appeal to their anger about racism in a way that doesn't. Uh, touch their concerns about predatory finance, um, uh, loss of homes, loss of jobs, living in underserved neighborhoods, a lack of educational opportunity. The idea that black voters are somehow not, uh, are somehow, I mean, I, I want to say somehow stupid, you know, that, that, that if you give a kind of sop to uh, a concern about racism, you've actually addressed people's concerns. As if like poor black people in, say, Philadelphia, where I lived for a long time, primarily experience racism uh, as people saying mean things about black people on TV or something, rather than those exactly. underfunded schools, rather than mass incarceration, rather than lack of access to health care? It is really, really maddening. I want to talk more about what these studies are are, are missing. You mentioned the, the nearly yeah. 4 million missing black voters, black voters who mm -hmm. would exist were it not for mass incarceration or premature death if they had uh, similar living conditions to, to those of, of white people in the U.S. Kim Moody at, at Jacobin makes the important point that understanding Trump's victory means understanding non-voters, which right. these studies don't ever seem to care about much, um, even though we have an incredibly low voter turnout in this country. And as Moody writes, among other problems, a large majority of those without a college degree don't vote at all. 
Furthermore, people who don't vote are generally to the left of those who do on economic issues and the role of government. Of the 135.5 million white Americans without degrees, about a fifth voted for Trump, a minority that doesn't represent this degreeless demographic very well. Why does this huge number of non-voters who are disproportionately poor people get get so little attention? And what does that that lack of attention elide? You know, we 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 do not live in a robust democracy. It, it, it should be obvious to everyone that that's true. I mean, that this potentially skirts us into another area of conversation about, you know, norm erosion and such. When when we live under a a, a, a constitutional system that was really designed to prevent. Um, the possibility of there being a robust popular democracy, you know, through the agencies of, 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 of institutions like the Electoral College and the Senate and other kinds of anti-democratic institutions that are very crucial um, to basically maintaining plutocratic power in the United States and were designed that way from the beginning. Um, so this is just another example of how so-called political science and its sort of narrowing focus on, on voters and elections and kind of thinking about um, sort of how a certain specific technical thing might have happened and trying to isolate the variable really misses the, you know, the forest for the trees. Um, the forest really is um, a, a political environment that's not propitious to democratic action. Um, that works against it, uh, that suppresses votes, um, that suppresses participation um, quite consciously and by design. And obviously that's on the rise in many states where Republicans have been involved for, for, you know, decades now in voter suppression efforts. Um, So the failure to, to, to focus on those things is, is really part of a, an acceptance of, 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 of a status quo that a lot of people are still very invested in imagining, you know, still has life left in it, if they even think about it that way. And this goes back to something we said earlier in this conversation, you know, the, the idea that Trump is some kind of aberration, um, some some kind of mistake, some kind of some kind of uh, expression of again the sort of the sort of lizard brain of some some you know regressive white voters, um, and that really the system the system works well if it's allowed to sort of return to the sort of business of usual where where technocratic elites who are enlightened and who who, who believe in diversity and who, um, you know, who are, um, who are, who are, who are thoughtful about policy and so forth are kind of put back in charge. And it's, and it's all just, it's all just, um, it's very, very, it's a very, very strange kind of, kind of bedtime story. It seems like people want to tell themselves in a country where, you know, 20 years ago, we were all led into a massive war under, under total false pretenses after an election that had been decided by the Supreme Court <laughs> and that had prevented had prevented any kind of um, any kind of serious inquiry into what had gone wrong with a with an administration that was was quite illegitimate and that began to pursue policies that have bec- since become the hallmark of the GOP, which is basically to figure out how to strip away assets from the American people, how to privatize public goods, how to uh, lower tax rates for the wealthy and for corporations, um, how to uh, undermine public commitments of all kinds, 
to to the institutions that uh, most of us rely upon. You know, the most basic of which is probably the public schools, um, and there has been no really serious countervailing. Um, stand by the Democratic Party. I think we hoped for change with Barack Obama, and I think Obama actually did show some of the way forward because I think Obama broadened the electorate. I think the promise of hope and change was really the promise of what it might mean to mobilize more people to invest in the democratic process with the idea, I think, that we would restore an idea of accountable government, we would restore an idea of, the, of, of, of a government that was dedicated to, um, to, to, the, to what they like to call the middle class, but I think broadly to a kind of society that's based upon broad ex- economic opportunity, um, and, and also a society that is no longer so deeply invested in war in the outer world, you know, I think these are these are very basic things, you know, and I think these are things that o- Obama brought to the table in a moment of crisis, and I think they 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 won the day. Um, and then what did we find? We found over eight years very very incremental uh, changes in terms of making government more responsive and accountable. Uh, very little, I think, change in people's material circumstances. If anything, a strengthening in commitments to continuing to prosecute wars in the world. Very, very small, you know, uh, sort of return to the status quo, uh, an effort to kind of launder the past, to say we're not going to prosecute people for torture, for lying to us, for getting in, us into a war under false pretenses, for uh, banks that um, that defrauded and bankrupted people and, and, and made them lose their homes all of that was going to be sort of um, sort of sort of sort of papered over it with with you know perhaps new some new regulations that were fairly mod- modest to make sure that some of this didn't happen again anybody who thought that that was going to be an adequate response to the kind of calamities that had been produced in the bush years was deluding themselves. So the idea that at the end of all of that, we got something as as monstrous as Trump uh, really shouldn't have surprised any of us. And in terms of the Obama kind of nudging towards an expanded electorate, I don't remember what the turnout was under Obama. It was better than 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 prior elections, but still, you know, huge numbers of Americans not voting. And I feel like political journalism um is very complicit in the perpetuation of this low turnout by, in its coverage, representing the the electorate as the demos. You get a sense from reading political journalism that in whatever state, you know, there's an election happening, that everyone on the street has, like, a well-thought-out well opinion about the various candidates and feels strongly one way or the other or is actively trying to decide— when what I found out when I did a story a few years ago in 2014, I think in southwestern Pennsylvania, in the district that Connor Lamb ultimately won, that a lot of mm-hmm. people are totally alienated from politics. But you never see their quotes yeah. of being just like "fuck everyone," which is what a lot of people right. think in the press. I don't think that the press, more accurately representing this, would would be a silver bullet to changing all of this. But there is this this naturalization of a of of an electorate that's really just like half of the country as the entirety yep. of the demos. Absolutely. 
No, I mean I think we really suffer from the fact that we we actually don't have we don't have a we don't have very diverse newsrooms. We don't have people newsrooms that are really filled with people who understand the 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 full range of people in this country. Um, I mean, just to go back to your point, I think there was a piece in the in the Washington Post a while ago that that that, that made the case that something like four and a half million Obama voters um, from 2012 stayed home in 2016. More than a third of them African American. I mean, there there there's there's a huge there's a huge story there, you know, to the the disillusionment of people with you know of people with with the political system with both parties. Um, you know, we, I don't think we live under a government that is seen as, 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 as broadly legitimate or in any way responsive to people's needs and concerns. And, and also, you know, most politics is local. So, I mean, if, 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 if we have revitalized local politics that comes out of, um, out of some of this over the next decade or two, um, it will be a great thing, but, but much of the ways in which districts have been designed, and this is partly what gerrymandering is about, is to really, um, to really limit and insulate incumbency from any kind of significant challenge. So, it's uh, it's it's no it's no surprise that many people would just be like, well, this is just, you know, this is just business as usual, and you know, Trump can come in and say, I'm going to drain the swamp, and the swamp is murkier than it's it's ever been before. Uh, Obama can come in and say hope and change, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I mean, obviously Obama's a thousand times better president than than Trump is, you know, and someone who actually did do some things. Um, but in the end, you know, really, um, really took his eye off the the really important the really important issues that that concern people, um, and and essentially abandoned the field of of of, of political contention. You know that we need we need we need more political te- contention in this country. We need people to be awakened to uh, to the kinds of fights that need to be had, like in places like Philadelphia, where we got Larry Krasner and you know people really coming along who are who are responding to what the community says they need. And in Krasner's case, um, remedies to an overly policed and punished city, you know, that, um, that is just suffering under the weight of, of, of a, of a neglectful, um, and, and, um, and punitive, uh, regime. Right. So, so, the there has to be that kind of politics again. I mean, it's we think of it as small d democratic politics. I do think some of it's happening in different places as a result of of of, of the ways people are responding to it. I'm 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 fine with it happening within the Democratic Party. I I don't necessarily have a strong argument about third party politics. Uh, it doesn't. A lot of it sometimes seems pretty quixotic to me. We might as well try to fight for we might we might as well try to fight for the Democratic Party that we want. Um, but without that, without without getting the Democratic Party that we want, I'm not sure it makes much of a difference. The, a Democratic Party that is primarily committed to, um, you know, affluent suburbs and tells itself that you know, we're, it's woke and and then they're good progressives and a, a a right wing Republican party that, that pays ersatz tribute to ordinary Americans while screwing them over at every turn. You know, they're, they're, as far as I can see, basically in collusion. 
This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback. We have lost our amateur spirit and need to rediscover the radical and liberating pleasure of doing things we love. In The Amateur, thinker Andy Merrifield shows us how the many spheres of our lives, work, knowledge, home, politics, have fallen into the hands of box tickers, bean counters, and pedants. In response, he corrals a team of independent thinkers, wayward poets, dabblers, and square pegs who challenge accepted wisdom. Such figures as Charles Baudelaire, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Edward Said, Guy Debord, Hannah Arendt, and Jane Jacobs show us the way. As we will see, the amateur takes risks, thinks the unthinkable, seeks independence, and changes the world. The Amateur is a passionate manifesto for the liberated life, one that questions authority and reclaims the iconoclast as a radical hero of our times. The Amateur, The Pleasures of Doing What You Love, by Andy Merrifield, out now in paperback from Verso Books. You touched on something uh, a minute ago that I want to talk about a little bit, which is something else that's not really paid much attention to in the press, which is the st- structural features of, of American government and elections that are profoundly undemocratic. And I think that the media is sort of tailor-made to, to miss this because of the emphasis on on news being things that are new when this is the opposite of new. It's very, very old, but but its contradictions only becoming right. more manifest. Not to excuse Hillary Clinton's ineptitude or, or monstrousness, but, but it's important to really highlight that Republicans have won just one popular vote for the president. One. Since Bush Sr. in 1988. And Bush Jr. Yeah. only did so because he had the advantage of incumbency, amongst other things. I mean, he wouldn't have been the incumbent if he hadn't been awarded the election uh, in 2000 by the Supreme Court. And so missing right. this can lead us not only, I think, not us, but some, to mischaracterize the electorate, but also to really like excuse and invisibilize how deeply undemocratic the American system is. And it's only going to get worse with, with population trends. Both with population trends and with the, the ability to um, manipulate um demographics through various kinds of social media intervention. I mean, this the sort of the degraded media ecology we live in that Trump really contributes to degrading even further, you know, makes it makes it extremely challenging. I mean, if anything, Trump, Trump made the idea that um, that that the vote that there's been voter fraud or something like that, you know, and 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 was was threatening to do that if he had if he had lost, as you remember, um, an issue which really distorts from the real issue, which is that in many places so many people are either prevented or 
um, or or actively dissuaded through the difficulties that are put in their place from from voting, from exercising their voting rights. And it's not an accident that the Supreme Court actually gutted oversight over voting rights in the South um, in the in the period before the rise of Trump, saying that we're somehow now you know very much past this long long history of black voter suppression, which has really defined almost the entirety of the history of the United States. I mean, the United States has only even been a formal liberal democracy since since 1965, you know, when it <laughs> when it finally uh, enfranchised um, African-American people. So so this is a very short time, which is why this whole discourse about democratic norm erosion is, is again, an example of the way in which an, an ahistorical um, um, way of thinking and talking about politics operates if we if we think of the United States as a very young and even fragile political democracy um, it really changes the way we think about what we're dealing with um, and and of course the, the 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 Republicans have been extremely successful in thinking about how to use the courts again um, some of the most anti-democratic um, uh, of our institutions to uh, to insulate um, against various kinds of challenges to the prerogatives of corporations and big money. So the other big decision, of course, being the Citizens United decision during the Obama years, which have allowed for the unlimited flow of, of private money and big money into electoral campaigns. So we're really in we're really in perilous times in terms of in terms of um, our our again small d democratic processes. And it, you're absolutely right that these are not glamorous stories. I mean, I mean, God, everybody's going to glaze over if you talk about campaign finance reform again. I mean, nobody's going to win an election on that on that uh, on that issue, and yet it's absolutely crucial. Um, and so we're 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 in a we're in a difficult we're in a difficult time. And and there was a there's a kind of a funny moment where. Uh, Fox News this past weekend, uh, one of the reporters that uh, reported on the Trump Kim summit as the meeting of two dictators, whoops. and um, it, it, yeah, she was like, "Whoops!" But um, but you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of habituation I think that we're 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 undergoing, where it's sort of like, well, okay, you know, politics it happens up there, and and we're we we lowly people will will sort of will sort of take what we can get. Um, uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens in 2018 and 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 beyond. Um, but there's a there's a real there's a real a real problem. As we've discussed, the defecting white voter in in 2016 is by no means the entirety of the story, and much that doesn't have to do with them is often ignored. But it is an important part of the story. And as we were just discussing, to understand mm -hmm. that story, we need to understand history. And you also mentioned earlier that we need to understand geographic nuance. And I want to point to some work now that does that. There was an important study looking at voting in the industrial Midwest, Appalachia, New England, from sociologist Shannon Monat, or Monat, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, that found that the in the general election, Trump overperformed the most in counties with the highest drug, alcohol, and suicide mortality rates. And I think this this correlation, which has been found by others between this skyrocketing white mortality and, and Trump votes is is 
to me a lot more interesting than political scientists purporting to show uh, something big by pointing out that there's not some neat one-for-one individual relationship between someone's immediate income and employment situation and whether or not they vote for Trump. We've done some research. I've done some research with a with a um, with a colleague of mine uh, in Alabama. We had a piece that came out um, last year on called uh, "Morbid Capitalism" in the journal M Plus One, which was based on research we did in an Alabama factory town that deindustrialized. It's uh, called Florence, Alabama, and and that's the other thing about deindustrialization as a kind of long-term secular mm-hmm. phenomenon. You can't just look at um, the the sort of the, cur- the snapshot of the current moment. People have long memories. A lot of Americans, I think, the majority of Americans don't actually move from where they live. You know, we talk a lot about mobility in America, but a lot of people are just in the same place for for their whole lives, and they know people who lived and died in these places, and they develop stories and they develop narratives about what has happened in these places. And in Florence, Alabama, around 2000, a disaster hit where this once thriving textile town um, basically lost all of its jobs. The, all, the, all the textile factories shuttered, and they they moved to Central America. They moved to the Caribbean. Some of the some of the 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 jobs obviously migrated all around the world. It's it's the context of NAFTA. It's the context of of of, of the China shock or what's called the China shock by the those political scientists, uh, the political scientist David Otter, um, and um, and and people still are trying to make sense of the disaster that hit the place where they live. You know, they've been trying to make sense of it now for more than 20 years, and they don't have really good explanations for it. You know, some of them blame China. It's not clear that China has anything to do with what happened in Florence, Alabama, but it's it, it can easily become a kind of a catch-all. You, you, you know what I mean? Um, and and it and 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 it's a and Alabama has some of the highest rates of opioid addiction. It has some of the highest rates of incarceration. Um, it's interesting to note, as we do in this in this piece that we wrote, that um, although textile manufacturing was destroyed in Florence, Alabama, textile manufacturing is actually thriving in Alabama's prisons, where the majority of, of people inside prison are, of course, African-American, as we've come to come to expect. So when you look at, uh, take a snapshot of a place like that, all the contradictions that we see in American life right now are 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 on display and even someone with a de- who still has a decent job in that town might for economic reasons maybe not their own in the most narrowly defined sense be deciding to vote yeah i mean people will be deciding uh, not to vote or people people in that town which is majority white um are uh, are people who are voting for trump you know they're voting for the GOP. They they think Jeff Sessions is 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 just great. Um, the politics of Alabama has been been long dominated by by a history of white supremacy, and only for a short period was there really 
um, a kind of change. And this is something that we we talk about also in our research that in the it's really only after the it's only in the 1970s where you really begin to see say the integration of textile manufacturing where black workers are starting to get access to decent jobs and decent wages because this this is one trade that was held held very defensively in white hands you know for the for its entirety in that state you know and and it's it's basically one generation of black workers that gets access even under very difficult conditions before you get the the dismantling of um you know of 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 textile manufacturing in Alabama and in the United States at all really um in the in the 90s and and just after the turn of the century um so the failure of this country to actually achieve significant um, cross-racial economic opportunity, um, you know, is something that is really very core to the, the 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 struggles that we we now have across race and class lines. You know, and I think what we're what we see now is the the kind of precarity and and uh, and loss of work and loss of livelihood that black workers have long suffered in the United States are are becoming more broadly shared. And and maybe one of the indices of that is this this what these you know what these demographers have identified as as rising rates of white premature death you know middle middle aged white white um white morbidity and mortality rates are going up in certain places um and converging with um with what have always been higher um african american uh, rates of mortality in this country it's it, it's a cla- it's broadly a class story you know it's broadly a class story again about um about the kind of global race to the bottom about the 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 the, the global wage being sort of reset for workers who are in, who are manufacturing workers um and and that's something that is now you know really impacted the United States and Trump really does speak to this as an economic as an economic concern you know he racializes it thoroughly Right, and he only pre- he presents it as, as defending the interests of certain kinds of workers and certain kinds of um, people and and of, of of national insiders, you know, who are seen as having been sort of the victims in his narrative. Um, uh, but but he does speak to it as an issue in a way that I think very few uh, politicians in the kind of more sort of neoliberal oriented Democratic Party speak to. And there, there's one thing that I want to highlight from. Manat's conclusion, which is her subtweeting the the kind of crappy political science that we've been discussing, which is she writes, clearly there is an association between drug, alcohol and suicide mortality in Trump's election performance. However, this relationship should not be interpreted as causal. No single factor, including race, education, income, rurality or health, can explain this election outcome. To suggest otherwise ignores the economic, social, and demographic complexities that drive human behavior in the contexts of the communities where these voters live. What these analyses demonstrate is that community-level well-being played an important role in the 2016 election, particularly in the parts of America far removed from the world of urban elites, media, and foundations. And I think this is like what you're highlighting in terms of your, your research in Alabama. In Florence, is that political scientists like Mutz are looking for a shortcut around addressing 
local particularity and the kind of qualitative texture that one has to deal with in this really massive country. Yeah, I think that's, that is such a great, that's a great quote and in some ways a great bookend to, to the, the, the text of mine that you read. I think, you know, I've always said this from the beginning and I wrote a piece right after the election that, that, that Trump's election is, is an overdetermined event. Uh, we use the term overdetermined to basically say something that has, has many causes. And uh, you 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 can you can do fa- counterfactuals all day. Um, you can uh, you can try to think that you're getting at the at the at the sort of the, the sort of one true narrative, but most efforts to produce the one true narrative are themselves invested in a certain kind of reading for for various kinds of political aims and agendas because we read elections in order to make arguments about what we should do and what we should be doing next. Um, I'm I'm actually trying to argue for what we should do and what we should be doing based upon how we read the country, not how we read a single election. Um, I think the Trump election has given us some kinds of information, information that in many ways we already had about our as what I've called our degraded media ecology about um, the the accessibility of our politics to racialized and demagogic appeals, about the insularity of um, of, of of neoliberal technocrats to the the, the the plight and distress of ordinary Americans, um, to the changing uh, global environment in which people find themselves um, very unsure about the the purchase of their own political agency. I mean, all of these things are, are very real. They're not just being experienced in the United States. Um, perhaps the last element that I've written about quite a bit in my, my most recent work is, you know, the pall, the long pall cast over this country by being basically in a state of, of emergency that began under the, the auspices of the war on terror, the, the, the deep degradation of our, our, of our ethical culture by recommitting to torture, rendition, um, uh, mass deportation, of course, the, 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 the shadow of mass incarceration over all of that over a longer period. The, these, these are the things that I think have produced something like a kind of American carnage of, of the kind that Trump refers to. Um, and when he refers to something like that, people, people want to laugh and, and kind of say he's not talking about anything real. But I think a lot of people um, find something real in that. And um, of course, Trump is a contributor to to carnage. He he has no solutions. He has no ideas about how to address people's distress. But he speaks in the language of of a of a kind of uh, um, of a kind of uh, contemporary pessimism that I think is very that feels much more realistic to people than you know the the, the retort that you get from Hillary Clinton where she says well America is all, is already great when you know America is already great I don't nobody very few people I think truly believe Trump is going to make America great again but I think the tenor of Trump's kind of anger and pessimism at a, at an effective level you know, at a level that sort of short-circuited even from the specifics of what he's saying ideologically, and it's not just pessimism, I think, but it's it's also it's also nihilism, which to me seems like yeah, pessimism that's true. combined with alienation equals nihilism. Maybe yes, I think that's really 
I think that's really true. You know, I, 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 I have. I, it's obviously not provable. It would be interesting to see if one of these narrow political <laughs> sciences tried to prove how many people basically voted for Trump because they wanted to like fuck the system. Yeah, and because they're you profoundly know? and yeah, just, totally just, alienated. Yeah. <laughs> What's what? What are the variables on that? That you, what are the measurable? <laughs> right. What are the variables? Right. And you can you can certainly quote me on that. Before we move on, I just you mentioned David Artur, um, an economist from MIT, his work in terms of, you know, and this again, just like Manat, this uh, the Manat study we were just talking about. These are we're not saying that stats aren't useful. Stats are useful, but just be careful about what they don't speak for themselves is the problem. Um, and David Artur did look at um, a number of congressional districts, which are more specific things than panel, you know, data from the entire country. And, and he found in this one study that those congressional districts exposed to larger increases in import competition were likely to replace moderates with conservative Republicans in majority white districts and with liberal Democrats in majority non-white districts between, uh, I think it was 2002 and 2010. So there are there is there is interesting data out there, but that we just need to be like yeah. people just need to be modest <laughs> about about what contribution they're offering to this bigger picture. I agreed, and I think his, I think his research is is interesting, and it would be it would be more take more time to go into it, but um, but I think your point is is spot on. I mean, I I learn from these I I learn from some of this kind of work, especially work that has that kind of more empirical, um, you know, we know correlation is not causation, but that kind of empirically grounded information, you know, then asks us to make certain kinds of interpretations and I keep coming back to this this word interpretation um, we 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 are not social scientists we are we are social critics and interpreters um, I'm I'm very skeptical about the kind of hard robust scientific claims that get made about about the why and the how you know that are that are based upon this kind of empirical research the why and the how have to do with with how people make meaning over time in place and that requires a much deeper qualitative understanding um that is that is then connected to um you know real investigation of what's going on in these places which can involve numbers of course right the numbers of jobs lost the numbers of the numbers of, of the, the the numbers that relate to to things like trade the numbers that relate to things like um uh, mortality rates and 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 rates of addiction and all of these kinds of things those are all factors that should inform our understanding of the aggregate but without without a, a kind of a smart and historically informed, even even anthropologically informed uh, lens um, onto the variability of life as lived in these different places. Um, I think we will always be be producing a a very a very narrow and uh, unhelpful uh, knowledge, a, a not a, a pseudo knowledge really of of what's going on. Again, you know, to just get back to sort of the the essence of this conversation, where I think you've been really doing the heavy lifting. Why would we want to make the case that racial something called racial resentment or stat or, or, or racial status anxiety or desire for racial dominance is somehow a kind of a kind of a narrow, self-evident explanation for anything? Um, 
it would be absolutely wrong to take out the racial animus piece from Trump and Trumpism. It is crucial. You know, he he has understood how to work that ever since he demonized the Central Park Five in 1989, all the way through the birther campaign, and every aspect of his political rise has been scripted according to basically being a publicly committed racist. So we know this, and this. It should 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 sadden and horrify us that this can have this much traction uh, as it does within our political life, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot ultimately about what we need to do and why we're in the situation we're in because this is also a country that was able to 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 mobilize around the election of a of a very progressive on paper black president. You know, not just just eight years before. So both of these events happen. You know, both of these events seem to suggest two very, very different countries. You know, and this is what I meant in my opening remark that American politics is a is a is a is a mediated occult realm. You know, in in which people are trying to read the tea leaves and divine intentions um, and and tendencies of people who are who are who are who are living out their lives in very diverse places in very diverse ways. Um, but I think we can say if we care about um, about equality, if we care about livability and sustainability, that we should care about what those conditions are. And we should be investigating what those conditions are and that those conditions, it's, it, in the last instance, are important to the kinds of political choices people are going to make, whether that choice is to vote for a white supremacist or to stay at home, you know, and just to kind of refuse to participate. And unless the Democratic Party, which is the one vehicle we, we seem to have, however flawed and imperfect it is, um, unless the Democratic Party can reach that wider electorate, can expand to the, the, the party of non-voters can, um, can convince people who might be persuaded by racist demagoguery um, that they actually are offering them something better you know, something that really meets their 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 uh, their their everyday distress in some way. Um, you know, we're going to continue to go round and round on this. So, you know, I just don't understand why um, it's it's become a weirdly reassuring story to say Trump was elected by racists. I don't I I don't I don't get it. I mean, it's meant to scare us, but it's also like somehow meant to meant to tell us, well, you know, we all, we all know all that we need to know about this. Um, you know, and, and in fact, I think the reason it, 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 the reason that this becomes the kind of commonplace is because our system is actually much, actually much more broken and much more damaged than that, which is which is saying something. Well, Nikhil Paul Singh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. Nikhil Paul Singh is a professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and the author of Race in America's Long War. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, the tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. 
We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And please do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.